From KYW News Radio, the Delaware Valley's news authority, this is Flashpoint. What's igniting debate online and in your community? I'm KYW Community Affairs reporter Cherry Gregg, and we'll run through the big issues of the week that are getting folks hot under the collar. Coming up on this podcast, a bombshell decision by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court orders Republican lawmakers to redraw congressional maps. In just a matter of weeks. I think people are going to have a vested interest in who their congressperson will be. Democrats could gain seats in Congress and Republicans have appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. This is exciting. Nobody wants this to happen instantaneously. All sides weigh in on what this means for voters. The story of so many are still unknown. He was a slave, yes, but he sang at his church choir. He was married. The legendary Roots Crew collaborator and the heroic tale he'll take to the stage to celebrate Black History Month. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks all. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is the earth-shattering decision by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court that strikes the Commonwealth's current congressional district maps. The gerrymandered map gave Republicans the advantage in 13 of 18 districts. Now, they must be redrawn by February 9th. You cannot sort voters based on their voting history. State Republicans are outraged and have appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, claiming the deadline will result in chaos for the May primary. Meanwhile, districts like the 7th and Delaware County have parties scratching their heads over where the boundaries will lie and who will run in light of recent scandals involving incumbent Pat Meehan. This is not the way you'd want to have an open seat. So is there enough time? Will the U.S. Supreme Court step in and will there be pandemonium at the primary? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is the chair of the Pennsylvania Democratic Party, Marcel Groen. We also have the chair of the Republican City Committee of Philadelphia, Mike Meehan. And on the phone, we have Carol Cunningham, co-founder and chair of Fair Districts PA. Welcome to Flashpoint. To be Thank with you. you. This ruling was pretty much groundbreaking. And now the countdown is on. And so, Mike, I want to start with you. How are Republican lawmakers looking at this? They've already filed with the United States Supreme Court because the same map was affirmed and approved the week before this decision. Now that you have two different courts in Pennsylvania with different different decisions, I assume that they're going to ask the Supreme Court to stay it, which they've done in North Carolina within the last two weeks, I think, the same type of deal happened. The difference between the North Carolina case and and this case is that we're talking about Pennsylvania constitutional law, not federal constitutional law. I agree with you. I mean, I don't think that the Supreme Court will take and stay this proceeding because that would be a very slippery slope for them to get involved in in any state constitutional issues. I think the case holds and uh, we've got a lot of work to do. Carol, I mean, you're just your thoughts on this. I mean, the, meanwhile, while this legal battle is going on, time is ticking. Yeah, time is of essence um, in every direction. Um, the court made very clear that there needs to be, new, be a new map ready to be approved by the governor by February 9th if the state legislature uh, doesn't have one ready, um, then any petitioner can offer their own maps. And we certainly know that there are quite a few people putting maps together. I know the lieutenant governor has a map that he's very happy to share if the legislature does not come up with a map. So there's not going to be a shortage of maps. Uh, it's a question of does the legislature want to participate 
as they've been invited to do, or do they want to let that uh, responsibility go to others if they fail to meet the uh, the deadline? I also want to say that Mike mentioned that the map had been affirmed and approved. That is not the language I would use. The federal court judge said that it was clearly gerrymandered, that there was no doubt of that. What he said was that there was no there was no way to litigate that under the federal constitution. That's not an argument that will hold up against the state supreme, the state supreme court or the, the state constitution. They were addressing a different issue, and the federal case has nothing to say to that. So, in the meanwhile, while this uh, potential appeal is going on, are lawmakers working on that? I assume they are. Okay, but they're not coordinating with any local people at all. You know, nobody wants this to happen instantaneously, but. It happens when it on occurrence, and unfortunately, there's not usually a deep bench that people are just stepping in because a lot of these congressmen stay for ten to twenty years. So anybody who might be remotely interested somehow gets distracted and wants to go on with their life and get tired of waiting. How are Democrats looking at this? This makes the Democratic Party more competitive if the map is redrawn. It could make the Democratic Party far more competitive in Pennsylvania. We also have more work to do. And we have more work to do because most of the incumbents, 13 of them, are Republican. So they're, to the extent that they're running for re-election, that's easy. We, on the other hand, have to find, uh, we have found a lot of challengers. The problem is that some of those challengers that are running in some districts may not end up in those districts when the maps are redrawn. Now, you don't have to live in the district that you live in. But clearly it's a political issue and it becomes a political issue. Having said all of that, long-term and short-term, we desperately need redrawn maps, not just on Congress but for the State House and the State Senate. What will happen out of this, I believe, is that we will have far more competitive races. We have a primary coming up. People kind of have to know who they're going to be voting for, get people uh, ready to run and know what districts they're running in and who they need to be pitching their, uh, you know, their platforms to? Can you comment on that? Every voter I've talked to is excited about the possibility of actually having really competitive races. I'm sure it's going to be a little hectic to get the information out. I mean, I'm also on the board of the League of Women Voters and, and you know, Vote 411, an online voter education um, platform. It's going to be work to make sure that all that information is in the right place at the right time. Um, but but for voters, I think this is a win that they're going to be able to have people who are actually um, campaigning for their vote rather than assuming that they they've been given an assigned district that's theirs until they decide to retire, which is what we've had for quite a long time. Now I talked to multiple Supreme Court experts on this particular issue, and what they said to me is that you know it's very 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 unlikely that any Supreme Court will disturb this decision. But what could happen is possibly some wiggle room on the timing. What is the argument there as far as what the 19-day timeline is doing, carrying out the actual election itself and getting people put into place to run? Part of the problem, Sherry, is on February 13th, they're allowed to circulate petitions. So at that point, somebody can be circulating and find out they're in the wrong uh, district. But there's other complications. And what do I say? Pennsylvania is is designated to lose a congressman a congressperson, in 2021. Okay, And and yesterday, a House committee approved uh, reducing the size of the legislature by one quarter. So, again, that's going to affect the reapportionment that has 
was regularly scheduled to occur in advance of the 2022 election. That's a, a really wonderful reason to enact what we've been advocating for all along, which is an independent redistricting commission. And Marcel, you had a comment. Yeah, I want to go back to timing. Uh, the fact is the Supreme Court's been very wise. They only pushed the whole process back by a week. They've indicated in their opinion they're going to be making a decision by February the 19th. Mm-hmm. That's the latest date. That means that petitions theoretically could be circulated as early as the 20th, maybe the 27th. So the process itself in terms of the voters is not that significantly different because the primary is not till May 15th. Where it becomes more difficult is for us. We have to make sure that, that we're part of the process, whether it's fair share or whether it's the Republicans or Democrats or the Supreme Court in terms of the map. And we need to make sure that we have candidates ready. So we'll be getting those ready. It's not rocket science. We have a pretty good idea in some instances what's likely to happen in terms of the Supreme Court was clear, try to make counties whole, make municipalities whole. So if you use that as an example, okay, you know what, what's likely to happen. You have your candidates ready to go. It's, been a, it's, a, it's a quick decision. It's short term, short time. But it's very wise. And and so what 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 is sort of the chaos there, Mike? I mean that. Well, part of it is the unknown is is the thing that caused the chaos. If Marcel and I sat down, we could probably draw the thing, okay? Because you'd have reasonable people involved in the thing. But uh, we're not going to be at the table, and everybody's going to be preserving their opportunity in the future because many of these people in the legislature is preparing it hope to run for Congress someday. They're looking about their future, and it's in the back of their mind. It may not be up front. But it's a challenge to the parties themselves, meaning the Republican and Democratic legislators. They have to come up with a map. They have to give it to the governor, and the governor has to find that it's, that it's acceptable. If they can't do it, then the Supreme Court will, will make a very in. quick decision. Mm-hmm. So it's a challenge to, to the leadership of both parties in the Senate and the House uh, to, to get together. And if they can't, then I suspect they can't, to be candid. I hope I'm wrong. Then the, then the Supreme Court will look at the maps. They'll be getting maps on the 15th. They'll issue their decision on the 19th. Are you confident your your party, Mike, can get this done? I'm sure they were thinking about this before. So uh, they're prepared for anything in this. What are these organizations telling voters about this as they hear about the Supreme Court uh, ruling? What does it mean for them or does it mean or, or should they just not pay attention right now? It's good news for voters because the truth is voters don't really start thinking about candidates until closer to the primary anyhow. Um, and so by the time they're they're thinking about who are my candidates and who, who am I going to vote for, that will be in place. And I would say 86% of our legislative races last time, there was no opposition in the primary. And in many of our congressional districts, there was no opposition in the primary because if the district's been gerrymandered to be a Republican district or a Democratic district, you've got an incumbent, why bother? So in fact, for voters, this is great news. It's not throwing everything into disarray. It's just a week before the election, they're going to they're gonna look around and say, we actually have candidates. It will actually be better for the voters in many instances because right now what you have, you've got districts where municipalities are split up all over. You could live across the street from your neighbor or even next door to your neighbor and have two different Congress people. And so frequently people don't even know who they're voting for anymore. If you look at the 7th Congressional District, it starts in Horsham and ends in Lebanon and looks like an amoeba. The sixth is not much better. And so when you start putting them together, it's for the voters. For the first time in a long time, especially in the Southeast, I think people are going to have a vested interest 
in who their congressperson will be. Are the Republicans ready for this? They're going to be ready for it. Yes, they are competitive and they compete all the time. Republicans have had a lock on 13 of the 18 districts. And now I understand at least five of those 13 will be more competitive. Are the Democrats ready for that? We're ready. We're ready. We're excited. In some of the districts, we'll have lots of competition. Looks like the 7th, no matter what is drawn up. Uh, We have seven people in there right now. Some of them will drop off because they won't be in the district when it's it's redistricted. Uh, But we're we're ready. And um, I think ultimately it's likely that the potential is going to be somewhere between 10 to 7, 9 to 9, something like that. I disagree with Marcel in that – you know, many just in the complaint by the League of Women Voters, they're talking about some of those districts in Marcel's own county uh, that the Republicans were getting 60 and 70 percent of the vote. I don't automatically concede that those are going to be competitive. Yes, they could be together. And yes, I believe Montgomery County should probably have one and maybe part of two districts. So. So there's going to be so everybody agrees that there was something this map needed to be reworked, whether or not it needed, you know. Look, I think both parties agreed that it needed to be reworked. I think the Republicans position is it's been like this. Leave it alone and we'll deal with it three or four years down the road. Our position and frankly, the Supreme Court's decision, as well as the League of Women Voters said it's enough already. Do it right now. Change it. And then we can redistrict more logically and fairly in three years. And so let's talk about the impact on the midterms. I mean, how are how are y'all looking at this? I mean, this is a this is a major issue. This could have a huge ripple effect across the country and impact um, pretty much the, the, the power of, of Congress. Well, it certainly will have a significant effect. And what will happen is that we will find people there will be lots of money and lots of energy and lots of people coming into Pennsylvania. There's a possible pickup from anywhere from two to six votes, six districts, probably more two to five. And that's that's significant when you need about 30 uh, congressional districts to shift uh, the powers. Do I believe that there's going to be some shift? Yes. In every midterm election after a president's elected, there's usually a shift. The question is whether or not it's going to be dramatic enough to really make a difference. And and so, Carol, I mean, how do you view this? This is a midterm. You're you're applauding this move. You're saying this is great for um, for, you know, voters in the midterms. How do you think it'll impact? Um, I, I think it'll open things up a bit. I mean, Congress has very much needed more moderate voices. It's very much needed people who are, are more responsive to their constituents. I mean, in Pennsylvania, many people have been feeling their their folks in D.C. are really not listening very well. And so I think people are hopeful that this will provide for some more accountability with their representatives and a bit more responsiveness. You asked a question about how this will impact other states. I think what this will do, it will encourage states to look at their own state constitutions because the federal government does not have strong protections for free and equal elections, whereas most state constitutions have pretty strong language about free and equal elections, something of that nature. And so this encourages those states to stop and say, we've been waiting for the federal court, the Supreme Court, to step in and and find that this is inappropriate. Uh, perhaps we should be looking closer to home, and they should be looking to their own 
their own state yeah. constitutions, their own state supreme courts. And, and really, states are deeply harmed by this. So this is a great encouragement to other states to take a different approach. And we hope that we're an example in that. I want to say thank you uh, to Carol Cunningham. Thank you to Mike Mann. And thank you to Marcel Groen for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, he shipped himself to freedom in a three-foot box. For a man, your stature to squeeze inside a box. A heroic story and the artist behind it just in time for Black History Month. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, with Black History Month just days away. One man is making waves with his unique homage to a pre-emancipation hero. Harry Box Brown, born a slave in Virginia, was a magician and poet who at 33 devised a plan to ship himself to freedom in a three-foot box. His amazing story is unknown to many, but in walks... But in walks Carl Dice Raw Jenkins. Known for his collaboration with The Roots, he created and will star in a new production called Box, a hip-hop musical. The show opens February 1st at the Community College of Philadelphia. Here's some of my interview for CBS3 Eyewitness News. You know, a lot of people have heard about this story, mm-hmm. uh, but what about it struck you? <sighs> the biggest thing that struck me about Henry Box Brown um, was how complex of an individual he was. When we think about slaves, or at least when I used to think about slaves, the humanity side was always kind of like ambiguous. Like, what did the slaves do? Did they only work? Did they only get beat? Did they only have hardships? Did the slaves have any love, compassion? Did any of the slaves write poetry? Did any of the slaves know uh, where they, how many slaves knew how to read? You know, how many slaves were involved in local politics? How many African Americans at that time were involved in local politics? And those questions were answered a lot. A lot of those questions were answered by Henry Box Brown's narrative. He was a slave, yes, but he sang at his church choir. He went to church every Sunday. He was married. He had a uh, he had a life off of the plantation. So there's a lot of humanity inside his story that I think gets ate up in the way that we're typically taught the slaves narrative in America. Why did you want to participate in in the narrative? <sighs> My main thing was I wanted to tell Henry Box Brown's story, but not just his story. But I feel there's a lot of stories that mm-hmm. are just not told, and I also wanted to help children, you know, because like when I was in school, uh, they, they, they said in kindergarten that I was academic plus, you know, straight out the gate. They were like, yo, he's gifted. But as school progressed for me, I got a lot, I got more disinterested in school. And it was basically based off of the slave narrative of how it was taught. And it's, it's accompanied with the hip hop that I was listening to at the time, Public Enemy, Karis One, you know, things like that, that were pushing me in a different direction than my teacher was pushing me, mm. uh, teaching me different things than my teacher could teach me. But I realized that I still had good teachers, but they were outgunned. They were outgunned by KRS-One, Public Enemy, that was teaching me about myself. They were outgunned by, they're outgunned now by video games and the internet and Instagram and, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, Snapchat and all those different things. So I wanted to do something that would 
be kind of like a teacher's aide to help children uh, with the slave narrative. But it has to be a different way to teach the slave narrative that doesn't read like a nightmare or like a horror story. And I think the way to do that, uh, but not watering down or uh, or not teaching exactly what happened, but uh, teaching the hero side yeah. of it, you know, more more focusing on the ingenuity sides of slavery. How many inventions came out of slavery? You know, when you look at uh, black inventors and the things that the uh, African Americans invented, I mean, the list would fall out on the floor and probably down the road. And because of uh, those harsh circumstances that we were in, we had to create things on the spot mm-hmm. that we use to this day. Mm-hmm. And that's the side of African-American slave history that gets ignored. And I think a lot of that's due to cultural competency um, and just the way that we've learned African-American history. And so when you think about it, because this man, you know, um, shipped himself in a box. He wasn't a small man either. Like He was. He was a big guy. You know, he was a big guy. So that's why, you know, uh, you know, director Phil Brown was like, no, Dice, you play Henry. He was like, because we've got to show how difficult it was for a man, your stature, to squeeze inside a box and then be in that box for 27 hours, uncomfortable, uh, close to death, you know, sometimes upside down for seven, eight hours, you know. So that also describes like the hardships of slavery like slavery was so devastating that somebody would do that to themselves in order to as a chance to escape because you may he he said in his own narrative I may arrive dead but slavery is worse than death the ingenuity Mm -hmm. that he came up with this plan and had to like you know, while you're enslaved, you have to like execute on this. Yeah. Despite all the authorities and everything you're dealing with, um, survive and then make it out to the other side to have a life. After. Yes. After you do all that. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, but you know, after your family, I mean, he lost his family twice. He was shipped away to a different plantation than his mother, his father, his brother. Uh, and then his family was sold as a adult man you know you go off to work you're at work for a few hours and then someone comes and tells you that your family's just been sold yeah your whole entire family your pregnant wife your three children your wife and the new baby and they all had a price even the baby inside her they were all sold for price wow profit wow what are you hoping that young people or anyone who comes to see this play gets well, I mean, I hope different people get different things. You know, uh, African-American children, I hope that they can come and see the play and realize that the African-American history is more than slavery. Yeah. Um, I also want them to see that the African-American history doesn't start at slavery. You know, our history starts thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years before slavery, but this was a point of time where this is how we had to live. But I also want them to know that Even in those hard times, you have heroes. You have Harriet Tubman, you have Frederick Douglass, you have Henry Box Brown, you have Robert Kraft, you have Wentworth Cheswell, you have all these different people that are part of forgotten history. And I just want to put a spotlight on that for them to let them know that they're more than slaves, they're more than, uh, and slavery was more than just whips and chains. And all white people didn't own slaves or condone slavery. That's the other thing, because Henry Box Brown's master uh, was more like his friend. You know, he loved Henry. You know what I'm saying? They had a friendship, a kinship. And it wasn't based off of anything but 
friendship and sure respect for some, one another. I'm sure some people, some white folks have had to have helped him. Oh, yeah, of course. He had James Caesar and, he, you know, uh, the abolitionists here in Philadelphia who actually were there to receive the box. So, I mean, it, 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 we have to start showing a different side of slavery than what we typically see. Talk about what it was like writing um, a hip-hop musical that is directly tied to a historical not not just any historical but an African American historical figure that's a good question because uh it's a lot that goes into mm-hmm. the answer. It was an education process, like reading the narrative, understanding what actually his feelings were, you mm-hmm. know, and then trying to relay that feeling into the songs that I was currently working on. Um, doing my research, listening to, you know, the, 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 the National Congress Library where all the slave narratives are and, like, listening to real slaves talk, like, you know, because they did a recording of the last 100,000 slaves uh, around, what was it, 1920, 1930, there were, like, 100,000 people who were actual slaves out of the, the, um, the 4 million that were freed there was 100,000 still alive. And, you know, I listened to those narratives that just kind of understand exactly what about slavery that I may not know and try to capture some of the emotion and, and capture some of the, um, the, 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 the nuances that, that connect us just being African-American, you know, that I can relate to and that I think people relate to today that would be informative. If you had a line in there that you have to say that you think encapsulates or to you was your favorite line, what would that be? <laughs> my favorite line of the play? He has something from his narrative that is one of my favorite things that we did where I actually took some of his actual poetry that he wrote and used that with a song. So it's however much has been written, however much has been done, However much has been said, however, it's still not enough. However much has been said, however much has been done, however much has been said, however, it's still not enough. So, I mean, it's like a quote where he's talking about no matter how much has been written about slavery, as he's writing his own narrative, there will never be enough. Wow. From what's already been written, from what he's writing currently, and from what will be written in the future, it will never be enough to actually describe how horrific slavery really was. Go to henryboxbrownmusical.com for tickets. Next up, she's showing youth how to be queens who win. I'm going to educate so that you do realize that and you don't realize it when it's too late. Three ways a Philadelphia mentorship program is empowering women to be their own boss. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community, and one woman is having a positive impact on the lives of girls. Her name is Ronisha Howerton. She is founder of the Queening Mentorship Program. It's a self-funded eight-week program that transforms lives by introducing young ladies to being their own boss, among other things. And that's just what she does in her free time. Can't wait to hear more. Welcome to Flashpoint, Ronisha. Hi! Tell me about this Queenie Mentorship Program. So basically, um, it was a program. I felt the need um, to reach out to young African-American women from the ages of 14 to 21. I wanted to just inspire them and encourage them to go full force in pursuing their dreams and their goals. And I just really wanted to teach them um, the basic skills of entrepreneurship. 
Mm-hmm. And so it, it requires like self-love. I know there's a lot oh, of facets it, of yes. it. Yes, self-love, um, confidence. Um, we even touched highly on being financial, financially literate. So we taught them about credit and we taught them about investing in real estate. And we taught, I had like speakers come in that were already entrepreneurs in different fields and actually asked the girls, you know, what was some of their goals or some of their career choices. And I linked them up with a mentor that actually already is an entrepreneur in that field. You're an entrepreneur as well. What did you see in young women that you said, you know what, I need to help these young ladies? Well, I come from an area where the odds are really against the youth in my neighborhood. Yeah. And fortunately, I had a dad who was an entrepreneur. Mm. So everybody always asks me, what school did you go to? Where did you get a degree from? And I always tell them Marv Love University, my dad. I started my business in my house, literally in my living room and grew my business to a six figure business and was able to invest in so many different things. You did it. And tell people what your business is. So one of my businesses is Credit Medics. It's a credit and financial firm. We do a lot of different things. Of course, credit repair. But we actually help small businesses get funding. We help small businesses grow their brand and get them access to capital. We educate. We do a lot of workshops. I just recently did a college tour called Debt Free After the Degree, and I teamed up with one of my partners, the student loan doctor. I heard of her. Yeah, she's amazing. So we go around educating the community on credit and finances and, you know, money management and budgeting, and she teaches them tools to repay back their student loans effectively quickly to avoid high interest rates and defaulting on your loans and because people a lot of people don't know that just by you not paying on your student loans you can jack your credit up yeah so by the time you graduate you want to go into the work field and you're you can have a hard time getting a job because of a low credit score i don't think a lot of people realize that they don't Mm -hmm. and that's what we want to do we want to educate so that you do realize that and you don't realize it when it's too late. And so is that one of the reasons why you target 14 to 21? Because yes. that's before they've had any chance to mess right. everything up. Right. Tell me about you growing up. What made you say, oh, you know man. what, this is I need to give back to my community? Well, it was rough. You know, I grew up in a single parent household. It was my dad that raised me and things were rough initially. He raised me and my brother. But then he decided to break that mold from my family. You know, the worker bee mentality. My dad was like, oh, I'm going to just, you know, start a business. And he had a mentor and he saved up all his money from his employment checks. He saved for probably about a year and then he was able to invest. And he invested in a bar and then a couple years later, he bought another one, another one, another one, another one. That's my story. Just coming from, you know, an inner city, underdeveloped community and being able to beat the odds because so many of my friends are left behind. Yeah. Because they just don't have... You know, somebody that can teach them about entrepreneurship or teach them, give them the basic skills of life. Yeah. So give me like three tips that you give the young girls that come through your program. When there's no cheerleaders, there's no bells going off. There's no pom pom shaking for you. You have to be that support system for yourself when nobody is believing in you. Um, The other thing is no matter how hard something gets, no matter how dark it may seem at a period of time in your life, you can come out of it. And then what would my third thing be? I think that spirituality is important. Mm. I think that that's the foundation for everything. I think that you need to be centered around love. It just gives you this fulfillment. Tell people where they can reach you. Um, You can go to Credit Medics 
credit101.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Credit Medics, and you can also find us on Facebook at Credit Medics 101. Well, thank you to Ranisha Howerton, founder of the Queenie Mentorship Program, as well as to Credit Medics for coming in, and, and good luck to you. Thank you. I appreciate you. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. You can follow KYW News Radio on Twitter and let us know what you think by using the hashtag Flashpoint. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the show by using the Radio.com app, iTunes, or whatever platform you use to get your podcast. And if there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know. And we'll walk you through the flames. As Andrew Carnegie once said, you are what you think. So just think big, believe big, act big, work big, give big, forgive big, laugh big, love big, and live big. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.